Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, William Wallace. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of Scots, from Kenneth McAlpin to James VI. Uh, except that we're not doing a king of Scots today. Oh, hang on. Yeah, that's a point. Last time, um, well, actually, no, we'll go all the way back to why we're doing William Wallace, the backgroundy stuff, and why it is that we're reviewing an ordinary chap, not mm. a king. Yeah. It all goes back to Alexander Third. Doesn't it always? Bit of a dynastic crisis. His three children all died before him. Mm. And then he himself broke his neck falling from a horse in 1286. I really enjoyed him. So his only surviving heir is his granddaughter, who is a three-year-old Norwegian called Margaret. Mm. And then when she comes over to Scotland, she gets ill on the way and dies in 1292. Death by boat. There are no more royal heirs in that immediate direct line. Mm. So we had the great cause where there's, uh, the Scots have to work out who is actually their rightful monarch. And they ask the King of England, one Edward I, Hooray. to judge. He's a highly respected, very powerful king, a Absolutely. Cr- crusader, European diplomat, legal expert. Mm. But he does rather use this as an opportunity to extend his influence over Scotland. And he forces all of the competitors for the throne to acknowledge him as their feudal overlord before they can stake their claims. Yes, I think the key problem here is that he's both a gloomy goose and a greedy guts. <laughs> John Balliol is the person who gets to be king. Many think rightfully chosen, but he is consistently undermined by Edward. Ultimately, he gets fed up, rejects Edward's summons to join him in his war against France, and consequently, Edward invades, and John Balliol is forced to abdicate it after a rather swift conquest in 1296. He was rubbish. Oh, my word. So, in 1296, Scotland has been conquered by Edward I. Job done, hammer of the Scots. Only took him 21 weeks. Yeah. Uh, Balliol was stripped of his royal insignia and imprisoned with lots of other top nobles and sent off to London, as were Scotland's holiest relics, their crown jewels, and the Stone of Schoon, on which all previous monarchs had been crowned. After this, Edward goes on a little bit of a grand tour <laughs> of Scotland. He spent several weeks touring the country, being seen by as many people as possible in every major burr and royal castle. Mm. He then calls a parliament at Berwick, which at this point is the very, very northern bit... No, sorry, the southern very, very bit, southern yeah. bit of Scotland. Ah. And he receives the oath and fealty, either directly or just by a seal that's been prepared earlier, right. from over 1,500 Scots. That doesn't sound... Oh, but noble Scots. Well, nobles, bishops, but we also go down to tenants, uh, knights, slightly lower clergy. Right. He's getting everyone of any kind of standing to formally acknowledge him. So it's like a doomsday book... Oh, doomsday book of... uh, of fealty. Except, yeah, see, he's not worried about the land and their sheep and any of that yeah. sort of stuff, just making sure that they all acknowledge he's in charge. Rather than Doomsday Book, this becomes known as the Ragman Roll. That's rather less glamorous. Because of this sort of, you know, this, well, it's not a very glamorous document in Scottish mm. history, all these people <laughs> submitting. But apparently, uh, because it's a rather lengthy and complicated document, it's from this that we get the word rigmarole. 
Rex fact. That's but we haven't had a. Sorry, <laughs> don't mean to offend you there, Greg. But we haven't had a Rex fact of that standard for a while. I'm going to write that one down. However, despite there being, you know, nearly two thousand people on the uh, on this list, there's one name which isn't on there. Uh, let me guess. Could it be the title of today's episode? William Wallace. <laughs> so, <laughs> does that imply that then, and I don't mean to get ahead of ourselves here, mm. that the Bruces have signed this? The Bruces have signed this, the Commons have signed this, all of the major bishops who've been fighting against Edward, everybody has signed this document. Okay, but there's this one chap that hasn't, William Wallace. Well, the family, but yeah. But would, I mean, if would they notice that? Because who is he at this point? Well, let's find out. Okay. <laughs> Um, he's actually quite an overlooked figure in Scottish history until the 15th century. So until that point, the focus was all on Robert the Bruce. But then, uh, during the reign of James IV, a minstrel called Blind Harry wrote an epic poem called The Wallace. That's interesting in that I thought it was just since the birth of the blues that we had people called blind, but no, it's <laughs> been forever. Yeah. Um, it's this very sort of heroic portrayal of Wallace leading this great patriotic resistance mm. against Edward I, riddled with historical inaccuracies. And um, not, not unlike a film. Well, not unlike a film which bases a lot of its plot on the Blind Harry no. account. Oh, my word. Uh, but it's hugely popular. For centuries, it's after the Bible, the most popular book in Scotland. No way! Right up to, like, the 19th century. Hugely popular. Wow! Rex Fact. Rex Fact, if you will. <laughs> um, now, prior to Harry, as I said, there was an awful lot of mention of uh, Wallace. So actually, it's mainly the English chroniclers that actually make the most reference of him. So there's quite a, a lack of evidence about William Wallace mm. in general. And as uh, John of Forden yes, says, when he first arrives on the scene, he lifted up his head, as it were, from his den. So it's as if he's just been hiding, and then suddenly this ready-made historical legend just emerges. Right. From okay. nowhere. So, his name, William Wallace. Check. Now, Wallace, apparently, is uh, derived from an old English word meaning foreigner or Welshman. All uh, right, Wallace. So, Welsh ace. <laughs> well, yeah, so it's slightly odd implying that William Wallace, the greatest Scotsman in history, is Welsh. <laughs> um, but it's probably either from medieval Welsh immigrants centuries yeah. back or reflects that his ancestors spoke Cumbric, so a sort of a form of... Welsh, so those Britons that we remember in the old kingdom of Strathclyde, yeah, they didn't all go to Wales and Cornwall. Some of them went up to Scotland. So it may be that he's oh, right. descended so from he's a those. Proper, proper Scotsman. Mm. Now his parentage is also uncertain. Blind Harry claimed it was a chap called Sir Malcolm of Eldersley, but recently there's been a discovery of a seal by William Wallace that specifies that he is the son of Alan Wallace. Wow! Oh, cool. Who's Alan Wallace? Well, this is the thing. Either way, it's from a sort of centralish, westish Scotland, mm. but Sir Malcolm probably a little bit higher up the chain than Alan. But the family status, they are lower gentry. Okay. So they are of moderate standing. So, I mean, they're not a really sort of powerful, significant, semi-royal family, no. but equally, unlike in Braveheart, he's not a very common of the people, sort of almost highland farmer Yeah. So it, he would have been noticed off that list then, because if even tenants were... Because I think Edward's clerks were very particular about who they did and didn't get. But I imagine, with the efficiency of today's GCHQ, <laughs> he would have been on a list of those who had, yeah. weren't on the other list. Yeah. <laughs> now, Blind Harry gives rather contradictory ages for William Wallace. 
literally contradicts himself. But he's probably born roughly 1270. So when okay. we come to the 1296, he's sort of, you know, 26-ish. He is described by uh, Walter Bauer, a tall man with the body of a giant. That's William, That's Edward again. Cheerful in appearance, mm. with agreeable features, broad-shouldered and big-boned, with belly in proportion and lengthy <laughs> flanks. That's also a bit Edward. Yeah. Pleasing in appearance, but a wild look, broad in the hips, with strong arm and legs, a most spirited fighting man, with all his limbs very strong and firm. With the omission of the last word, he's describing a fat person. Yes, I suppose he Broad in hips, big boned. Now, his early years, of course, we don't really know very much about them uh, because of the lack of evidence. Walter Bauer suggests he went to a grammar school, which may be true. He probably would have been educated to a decent level. I think you've... There's a glaring error in all of your research here. We know exactly what happened. <laughs> Brian Cox took him to Rome and he learnt lots of languages. That's <laughs> true. Um, we don't know where he learned to fight. He's obviously um, able to because of the fact that he ends up being this military leader yeah. for Scotland with some success, but we don't actually know how he comes to know this. His seal bears the insignia of an archer. So some people have suggested that he might have fought in Edward's Welsh Wars. No Maybe way. as a mercenary troop for Edward, and thus wow. gained his skills that way. On the other hand, apparently, unless you're quite high up the food chain, the seals can be quite arbitrary, and just whatever design the <laughs> person in question is quite good at doing <laughs> right. is the one you get. He paid for the, uh, the standard issue seal. <laughs> yeah, so it might not actually signify anything. English sources came that he was a brigand, yeah, maybe getting up to really. a bit of no good, but that might just be English propaganda. Yeah. Now... How is it that William Wallace comes to play a role in Scottish history? Mm. Well, partly, it's all because of Edward's complacency. I, right. Okay, this, this episode's going to be very painful for me, isn't it? Weirdly for Edward and his obsession with legal certainty, he doesn't actually make it clear what exactly is happening with Scotland now he's conquered it. So with Wales, oh. there's a proper statute, it's annexed, and it just becomes part of England, but it, he doesn't do that with Scotland. He doesn't declare himself King of Scotland or anything like that. It's kind of left a little bit grey and murky. We don't know what he was planning long term. That is really very strange for Edward, isn't it? Mm. What he doesn't want to do is what he had with John Balliol, which is to effectively have a client king. Because mm. Robert Bruce, and this is the father of the Bruce, so the leper in <laughs> Braveheart, yeah. um, apparently after Balliol abdicated, he hoped he'd been fighting for Edward in the yeah. 1296 war, so he hoped to be rewarded and made king, because he'd been the other major claimant. So when he spoke to Edward about this, he got a rather withering put-down. Do you think we have nothing better to do than to win kingdoms for you? Oh, gosh. Don't want to get on the wrong side of him as well. No, and then that senior Bruce then pops back to uh, his land in England and doesn't really... <laughs> doesn't. Doesn't return. So then Robert the Bruce, the mm. younger one, is the one that takes over. One problem for Edward might be that uh, actually he didn't do such a grand tour as he maybe thought he'd done. Well, no, especially if he did the Parliament in Berwick. Well, that's where he ended up, but he did go around various other places. But right. the problem was that apparently, genuinely, the maps were of such inferior quality at this point that he may not actually simply have visited as much of it as he thought he did when he looked right. at the map. So it's interesting, actually, that when you look at the Ragman Roll, you get a large amount from sort of maybe a more central areas but actually if you go to somewhere like ross there's only a few signatures 
Okay. So he maybe didn't actually get to as many bits. He hadn't actually stamped his authority in as many places as he he thought he had. Yes, we were looking at an old map recently, weren't we? And it Mm. it showed the importance of sterling, and I'm sure we'll get to, Mm. as a tiny little narrow bit. And the maps were awful, weren't they? Yeah. Fun, but... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He doesn't settle the country with English settlers. He doesn't raise a huge tax to pay for the conquest, Mm. which you sometimes might expect. There's no grand castle-building programme. Or no regranting of lands. So he doesn't do an awful lot to really hammer home the conquest. This is no William the Conqueror kind of thing. Ah, (laughs) Um, He puts in charge, as Lord Lieutenant, a man called John de Warren, who, remember from last time, was in charge at the Battle of Dunbar Ah. and the father-in-law of John Balliol. Mm. Um, He was rather dismayed to be lumbered, as he saw it, with having to be in charge of Scotland. And apparently he ended up pretty much staying in northern England. Because of the awful weather, he could not stay there and keep his health. Well, he went from Scotland to northern England? Yes, and just stayed there because he didn't like Scotland. He didn't like the weather, said it was bad for his health. But, but like, Newcastle would be all right? Yeah. Wow, must be really... So the guy effectively in charge is the treasurer, Hugh de Cressingham. Um, but he doesn't really have any influence beyond Berwick because English... HQ is right down south. You mm. know, it's not even Edinburgh. It's all the way down. Mm. So his writ doesn't really run very large over Scotland. Oh, so it's actually left to its own devices, really? It's kind of left to its own devices. And Edward gives them cause for concern. And it's not just the nobles. It's also the middling sort. You're kind of lower gentry, your tradesmen, people in the burrs, etc. Um, the sheriffs and constables used to be local men, but now they're English. There's rumours of their wool being seized and all the revenues being taken by England out of the local economy. Mm. Clergy think they're going to be have their positions filled by English nominees. And because Edward is trying to get his war in France going, mm. there's a great fear that he's just going to conscript loads and loads of people from Scotland and force them off in ships to fight in France. Mm. So people start sporadically to rebel. Based on based on the fact that they're worried about the future rather than actually any bigger... Ve- there's no one spark. Uh, initially, there's no one spark. It's lots of little rebellions. Right. The spark that does come, however, is provided by William Wallace. He, in May of 1297, he kills a chap called William Hesselrig, who is the sheriff of Lanark. So quite an important English chap. And we see that in the film. We do see that in the mm. film. Whether it was because the Sheriff of Lanark killed his beloved is perhaps not uh, oh. evidenced. We don't know. Maybe it was. Mm. We don't know. Um, so initially he's got about 30 supporters, so he kills the Sheriff, attacks the garrison. But it's big news because he's quite a powerful man, and gradually he gets more and more supporters. So he's based around sort of Selkirk, and kind of Robin Hood style uses the forest there as a base to sort of train up his men. Right. Launch various raids. But it's not just Wallace, and we get other rebellions across Scotland, particularly in the north, and there's a chap called Andrew Murray. Mm. Oh, no way! Andy Murray! <laughs> Andy brilliant. Murray, as we should call him now. On. And when you dress up as Braveheart, I say it like everyone does it, <laughs> you, one, uses a tennis racket <laughs> for their weapon. Oh, I'll post a picture on Facebook of. Um, uh, a classic BBC sitcom, Men Behaving Badly, where Tony dresses up as Braveheart with a tennis racket. Um, so Andy Murray is a son of an actual knight. So he's higher up um, the nobility than William Wallace is. Um, and he's quite important because he gets some of the uh, influential magnates, maybe, to support right. the rebellion. But we do also get some of the major figures rebelling. Um, we've got Robert Wishart, who's a very formidable uh, Bishop of Glasgow. 
right. he stood up to Edward at Norham when Edward was initially oh, yeah. claiming um, dominance. Robert the Bruce was sent up to deal with the rebellion, but he decides that he's going to fight for the Scots instead of the English. Oh, right. And they raise armies along with James Stuart in the southwest of Scotland. So we've got Andy Murray up in the north, <laughs> Mel Gibson, William Wallace in the middle, <laughs> and the nobles and the bishops right. in the south. So we've got now significant rebellions breaking out. Mm. Unfortunately, the nobles don't put up a very good show. They raise an army, but when they're met by English forces led by Henry Percy and Robert Clifford... They fall out about what their tactics should uh, should be, enter into lengthy negotiations, and then actually submit to the English without doing any fighting at all. Why? Well, possibly these people would have all have been involved in the fighting of 1296 when it all went so hideously wrong. So maybe when they see a big English army, they think, well, we know what happens mm. at this point. And... Uh, would they have had any lands in England? They would have had lands, and also they've got lands in Scotland, which Edward has the power to take away. Oh, it's not in their interest. Yes, um, though it's known as the Capitulation of Irvine, which is yeah. where it was, so it's not remembered very fondly. But some suggest that perhaps Robert Wishart was deliberately having lengthy negotiations to give William Wallace time to prepare. Oh, okay. Mm. Because once again, the English get rather complacent after this. They think that the nobles are done, therefore the rebellion is over. Mm. In fact, Wallace and Murray are still at large. Now, Hugh Cressingham, the treasurer, seems to be the only one that does realise that there's still problems. And he writes to Edward, who's still in France at this point, um, complaining that since Irvine, matters have gone to sleep and that Wallace was like one who holds himself against your peace. It wasn't like one, he is one. <laughs> but Percy and Clifford, who dealt with the nobles, claim that Scotland is subdued, and it's not a problem. Right. Consequently, they delay reacting to Wallace So uh, Edward believes that it's all fine. He believes it's all fine. So Murray secured the north, Will, uh, Wallace is dominant in the centre, only Dundee Castle, north of the Forth, is still in English hands. So at this point, Wallace and Murray join forces okay. and besiege the castle together. Andy Murray, was he in the film? No, he is okay. very much a forgotten figure in Scottish history. There's no statue or monument or anything to him, at the, I think. That's, that's still the case. A Facebook group calling out to happen. Indeed. So, finally, after all this happens, Warren accepts that he probably does have to actually go to Scotland and do something about this. Mm. So he raises an army and goes north to relieve Dundee. And they face off at Stirling Bridge, which, as you were saying, is his vital point to cross to get into northern Scotland. The English army is about twice as large, but it's a very narrow bridge and it takes a long time for the English troops trying to get across. So the Scots wait until the optimum number of English troops come across, surround them so that they can't get back across and that the English can't reinforce them, and it's a massacre. Thousands of Englishmen, knights on their horses, proper soldiers, are killed. And uh, Warren seeing this disaster orders the bridge to be destroyed and retreats it's a humiliation for the english unfortunately for the scots andy murray is killed either during the battle or he dies from okay. wounds afterwards um so wallace is knighted and appointed the guardian of scotland that's in the film i'm not i'm, I'm gonna say i'm not gonna do this all the way through but i probably, <laughs> probably won't be yeah. able to help it uh, which is so impressive he's come from nowhere now to be effectively the man charged with Defending the country. Oh, so that's a proper title. It wasn't proper title. Who, no, he's yeah. invested with it. Yeah, right. He's technically operating on behalf of John Balliol, who's still at this point imprisoned in England. 
but recognised by the Scots but as king. still recognised as king. And because Apart we got Robert. Well, yeah, because we got Bruce and Comyn, who are the two major nobles in Scotland, and they're at loggerheads. Actually, Balliol, even though he's useless, he is at least a figure everyone can accept yeah. was the rightful king. So it kind of makes sense. So that goes a long way to our original question of why we're doing William Wallace today. Yeah. He, in this period of flux, he was the guardian. He's become the man in charge, basically. So, now in charge, he's got a bit of a challenge because he's got to keep an army in the field because he knows inevitably Edward is going to try and (laughs) teach him a lesson. But he doesn't want to impose on Scottish communities in terms of food and supplies. So what he does is a good old-fashioned raid into northern England. Yay! It's been a long time since we've had one of those. Uh, But he does it. He goes to Northumbria, Cumbria, Westmoreland, pillage, plunder, and booty. Sounds like a lovely little holiday, that. (laughs) Exactly. But, of course... Edward I is going to spoil the party. He'd been busy at war in France, or with France, um, but he was actually having a bit of trouble at this time in 1297. Excessive financial demands for his wars in Scotland, his wars in France, as well as the impact of the wars in Wales, Mm, and all those castles castles he Mm. built. He actually really comes fairly close to rebellion from the nobles. They're quite fed up at this point. He's been there before in his childhood, obviously. Exactly. But... The Battle of Stirling Bridge is so shocking that the whole English political community really rallies behind Edward and the idea of uh, an invasion of Scotland. It's so bad they have to deal with it. Right. So Edward makes peace with France, comes back and leads an army. Oh, it's bad enough for him to then make peace, so he has to sort of give up on the French campaign. Also, that wasn't going particularly well. Oh, good. But, you know, any excuse. But he's, <laughs> he's having a wobble. Bit of a wobble, mm. bit of a wobble for Edward. And he's, you know, he's into his 60s now, he's by no means a young man. No, but I bet he's still leading the charge, isn't he, in his 60s? He effectively makes York a temporary capital, Mm. so a good base in the north of England. And typical Edward, always a legal mind, he called a parliament there and demanded all the Scottish nobles came along. So when they didn't come, he uh, therefore was able to forfeit their lands and justify invading. Yeah, as if rebellion wasn't enough, he wanted the UN resolution as well. (laughs) Exactly. So it is war. He marches north into Scotland... Wallace had been avoiding battle rather cleverly, but he is spotted by Edward's scouts, and in 1298 we have the Battle of Falkirk. Once again, much larger English army, but this time luck is not on the side of William Wallace. The infantry put up a strong uh, strong fight, but unfortunately the Scottish cavalry flee the battle without Mm -hmm. actually doing any fighting at all. Also in the film. <laughs> also in the film. And the, one of the best lines from Edward, beautifully cast, is that where he goes, right, basically, I'm off. Bring me Wallace. Alive if possible. Dead. Just as good. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but Wallace escapes from the battle as well. Um, but unfortunately, his reputation is rather damaged by this defeat. Somewhat. Um, so he resigns as Guardian of Scotland. Gone, gone to spend more time with his family, as politicians <laughs> say. And he's re- uh, replaced as Guardian by uh, Robert Bruce and John Comyn. Right. Which isn't an ideal situation, no, given that they don't get on, but no. nevertheless. However, despite the victory, the English do suffer quite heavy uh, casualties, so they are forced to withdraw from okay. Scotland. And consequently, um, Edward does launch campaigns you know, intermittently between 1299 and 1302, but he's unable to really make a breakthrough. So the Scots effectively adopt the uh, guerrilla tactic. So despite Edward's sort of brutal mm. <laughs> oppression of his enemies, he only really makes piecemeal gains and then has to go home all the time. Is this because he's running low on cash? And, low on uh, cash, noble. less and less support for it. Yeah. 
1302, another campaign, he's forced to uh, call a truce for nine months and return to England mm. because he is running out of money. One of his problems, of course, as I said, he's running out of money. He does actually bring Master James of St. George, his oh. castle building so primo Here comes Wales, trouble to Scotland with him. But in Wales, where he had a virtual blank check, so even in 1290s, apparently something like £250 a week he was spending. In Scotland, he's given just £20 a week. What's he going to do with that? Well, brace yourself, Ali, for a shock. He's reduced to working with wood. I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> That's horrible. The ignominy. Oh, my <laughs> Lord above. That's terrible. He must have... Can you imagine he, <laughs> the, what he would have been like? He said, I am an artist. <laughs> I come from Savoy. I cannot work in these conditions. I was doing flamboyant arms there. <laughs> if only we had periscopes. I'm sure they could have heard it. <laughs> so, because we've got this military stalemate, one of the problems for Edward is that there's also a diplomatic battle going on. Mm. Because the Scots, you remember, had got that old alliance with yeah. uh, France. Oh. And Philip IV of France, of course, at war with Edward. Yeah. And also, the Scots had had a previously good relationship with the papacy. So they're appealing to Philip IV of France, they're appealing to Pope Boniface VII. Mm. In 1299, uh, John Balliol was released into papal custody from Edwards, from England into France in papal custody as a result of their diplomatic efforts. And uh, Pope Boniface VII later orders Edward to desist from his invasion and enter into negotiations. I'm not saying that Edward I is Adolf Hitler. <laughs> but it does seem like having an enemy on two fronts like the, with the old alliance mm. is very similar to having France on one side and Russia on the other mm. and they're being hampered by the League of Nations uh, <laughs> yeah. being the Pope in this case telling yeah. them what they can and can't do it isn't easy for him um, he rejects the Pope's claims obviously and then he wrote back with uh, a very well researched proof <laughs> of English um, overlordship of Scotland it begins with Brutus, who was someone from the fall of Troy, what? and also submissions apparently made by the Scots to King Arthur. All right. But it then goes on to list basically every single example of an English king receiving the submission yeah. of Scottish kings, so whether that be Athelstan, Canute, uh, William Rufus, all of these previous English monarchs that have got the Scots to acknowledge some kind of submission. He's like, there you go, there you go, there you go. Another example. He's got a point. But the Scots aren't going to accept this. They send a chap called Baldred Bissett, who is a clergyman with a good uh, legal mind. And a very powerful delegation goes to Rome, dismisses Edward's mythological claims as unproven fictions. Oh, dear. Well, which they are. <laughs> and they provide a Scottish mythology, which is even older, which goes back to uh, their being descended from Noah. Right. Um, and also they emphasise Scotland's status as Rome's special daughter, as ordained by a previous pope, at least the Scottish Church. Special relationship. 1301, the Pope releases Balliol into the protection of Philip IV, so he's effectively given him permission to leave and maybe even return to Scotland. Edicts yeah. are starting to be issued in his name by the Guardians in Scotland. It's looking up. Yeah, it is. Um, now, at this point, what is William Wallace up to? Hmm. Probably in about 1299, he actually goes into exile in France. Oh. Now, it's often suggested that he is effectively the one leading the negotiations with the Pope, with Philip IV. He's the one that's you know doing all of this stuff and getting the support in Europe. Is that possible, do you think? Well, I mean, he is in France, but... He definitely went to France. Yeah, he definitely went to France, but in reality, could he actually have added all that much to Bissett's delegation? 
beyond the symbolism of this great Scottish resistance uh, fighter. Cause, yeah, because that guy was sent there for that reason. Mm. Apparently he was initially arrested by Philip in a period where he was on better terms with Edward. And Philip actually offers him to Edward, but at this point Edward kind of shrugs a little bit and says, oh, you keep him. I, this bothered. is so uncharacteristic of him, not to have this long-term plan and then sort of lose interest. And then by 1300, Philip had changed his mind, and obviously Wallace had done sufficient job that Philip now decides he's actually a pretty good egg. Mm. And he actually then sends his men to Rome, Philip sends his men to Rome, to obtain the Pope's favour for his beloved William Le Wallace in the matter in which he wishes to forward with his holiness. Right. So, so he's think- now saying, you go to the Pope and tell him, Wallace is a mace of mine. You should listen to him. <laughs> right, okay. So things are looking up for Balliol, Wallace, Scotland generally. Yeah. It's possible that Wallace might actually have gone to Rome in person. He has been in the film, they told us that. Yeah. Um, he also received a letter of safe conduct from Harkin V of Norway. That's a bit out of the way. Yeah, again, we don't know if he actually went to Norway, but if he had done, mm. he'd have been absolutely fine. <laughs> Unfortunately for the Scots, things then take a turn for the worst. In 1302, we have the Battle of Courtrai, where the French suffer a shock defeat to effectively Flemish townsmen. Many of their elite cavalry and nobles are killed. It's a really shocking defeat. And as a result, Philip now can't really pursue his vendetta against Edward because his position is so weakened, so he now needs to make peace with Edward. Mm. At the same time, there's a pretty big dispute between Philip and the Pope Leading, actually, briefly to Philip um, arresting the Pope. Oh, yes! Yeah, that's amazing. I can't believe that happened. So, therefore, the Pope also could do with a bit of help from Edward to make sure that his position is secure. So, suddenly, France and the Pope are now very much after Edward and his support. Consequently, they have no interest in helping Scotland. Drop them instantly. Philip makes peace with Edward, despite a Scottish delegation and all their major people, the bishops, Sauls, the Guardian... He ignores them, makes peace with England with no reference to Scotland, and Boniface orders uh, Bishop Wishart to desist from his rebellion against Edward. Right. So they've gone full circle now. Yeah, They're that's now... quick. Yeah. 1303, Edward is now freed up to invade Scotland again, and he doesn't have to worry about the Pope, doesn't have to worry about the French. It's like he's woken up. This chapter should be called <laughs> Edward Wakes Up. <laughs> and he's suddenly, right, what was he doing? Yeah, <clears throat> right, sword's out. Uh, John Comyn, who is uh, in charge temporarily at this point, um, does defeat a scouting expedition at Roslyn, but Edward crosses the Forth for the first time since 1296. And apparently, I think maybe, I'm not sure if the bridge had been rebuilt or not, but apparently Edward constructs a bridge of boats. Oh, well, he did that across from Anglesey, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. So he's found, a, found his own way across. The Scots resist pretty well, actually, to be fair, but it's a war of attrition, and Edward is determined to outlast them. And we know what happens when he's determined. So in 1304, John Comyn realises that it's a pretty hopeless situation and he sues for peace. Good. All cleared up again. And unlike in 1296, Edward actually offers rather lenient terms. There's going to be restoration of lands and rights for Scottish nobles, maintenance of the laws and customs as they were under Alexander III, and the Scots are going to be consulted about any changes to laws or uh, their government. But is Wallace good with that? He is not happy. Oh, dear. He came back to Scotland probably in about 1303. He isn't at Roslyn with Comyn, and he's probably not leading the resistance, so he's maybe a bit more of a marginal guerrilla figure uh, leading his own little raids. Mm. In 1305, Edward draws up an ordinance for the good government of Scotland, which outlines all the terms, and he offers all of these 
sort of surrenders and submissions and forgiveness to various people. However, he's not willing for everybody to be forgiven quite so easily. And this is in his ordinance. As for Sir William Wallace, it is agreed that he may render himself up to the will and mercy of our Lord Sovereign the King, as he sees fit. Right, oh dear, that's not going to be good. So Wallace has to submit unconditionally to Edward if he wants any kind of Mm. mercy. And what's more, many of the leading Scots who've been sent off into exile, like Commyn, Stuart and Souls, Wishart, they can't return to Scotland until Wallace has either submitted or been captured. So Edward is obsessed, he is determined to bring Wallace to justice. Apparently Wallace may actually have tried to seek terms with Edward, but apparently he did did so through a friend, and he asked for an inducement from Edward to submit, i.e., you want some cash, maybe some land. <laughs> Saying, well, if you wow. offer me something. That's Edward's not very happy about that. No. And uh, consequently offers 300 marks to anyone that can kill him. <laughs> so an inducement. <laughs> yeah. That's classic Edward, isn't it? I'll give you a prince who can speak, uh, who doesn't speak English. <laughs> yeah. um, Wallace does hold out for quite a while. Quite a few months, 1305, he's holding out. as a large force under Aimer de Valence that tried to capture him, but was defeated by Wallace and he escapes. But he is finally captured at Rob Royston near Glasgow in August of 1305 by the servants of Sir John de Menteith, who is a Scottish knight, but he's also Edward's keeper of Dumbarton Castle. And he's taken south to London, where apparently Edward rejected the opportunity to speak to him. Yes, yeah, I can imagine. So he is uh, taken on a horse to Westminster Hall amid great uh, public excitement because Wallace is basically the ultimate bogeyman. He's kind of like the 13th, 14th century Osama bin Laden for the English. Yeah, running terror raids into the north. Exactly. He was made to wear a mock crown at his trial, supposedly because he boasted he would wear such a crown in London one day, though he never actually had any ambition to be a king. So That's weird. A bit weird. He was charged with treason and atrocities against civilians. Uh, treason, certainly. What atrocities do they claim? Well, Wallace's view was that uh, the quibbles were the other way round. The atrocities are when he goes into Northumbria and raids away for a few weeks. Yeah. Which he, you know, he's yeah. like, yep, yeah, fair, fair point yeah. <laughs> to do that. It's the treason he doesn't accept. He says, I could not be a traitor to Edward, for I was never his subject. Because mm. he didn't sign the Ragman roll. He's saying, I've never submitted to Edward I, I never acknowledged him as my lord. How can I have committed treason? And Edward's argument is presumably if 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 Wallace's lord hmm. had, then he's his. That is exactly Edward's argument, yeah. or his lawyer's argument. The verdict, obviously, is that he's guilty. Mm-hmm. It was only ever a show trial. So on the 23rd of August, 1305, he's taken to the Tower of London, stripped naked, and then dragged by horse to Smithfield, where he's hanged, drawn, and quartered, which is uh, involves heart and bowels being removed and burnt in front of his eyes. His body was then quartered, which is exactly what it sounds like. He is dead at that point, and sent to Newcastle, Berwick, Stirling, and Perth to be put on display, while his head was preserved in tar and placed on top of London Bridge. Oh, gosh, that's gory, isn't it? It's quite a, uh, quite a gruesome end for Wallace. So that is the life and uh, guardianship mm. of William Wallace. Let's find out how he does when we review him. Battleliness! Well, we've got some good battley stuff for William yes, Wallace. He does like a bit of fighting. First of all, he's got an impressive role as a leader yep. for the Scots. We've got the murder of the sheriff in Lanark, yeah. the attack on the garrison, which effectively starts... 
Well, it's, it's not the first thing that happens, but it's maybe the thing that kickstarts it into becoming a national uprising yeah. rather than just a series of local um, skirmishes. After the Lanark, he then allies himself with a chap called William the Hardy, who's Lord of Douglas. Right. And uh, they make a joint attack on Schoon. Apparently the English Justicia very narrowly managed to escape before the attack, but nevertheless Wallace does manage to capture uh, booty and wins a lot of prestige with another attack on a major English figure. It's quite incredible, these, when you... When you well, when you consider how... A rebellion could take something that was meant to withstand an army. Yeah. <laughs> must, they must have been seriously under, underprepared. Yeah, definitely. And he's very courageous. He was offered clemency, apparently, after Falkirk, but he continues fighting on to the bitter end. Edward had hoped that, you know, the traitor's death and the lack of burial would see him forgotten, but instead he ends up becoming something of an inspirational figure. But I thought it was forgotten. He is for a bit, but he, he came yeah, back. Well, now he's certainly back, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Now, the biggie for William and Battliness is the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Mm. It's on the 11th of September in 1297, so we've got the Scottish nobles having submitted to Edward, or, well, to Edward's men. But most of Scotland still in rebellion under Wallace and Andy Murray, who are besieging Dundee. So when Warren comes north to relieve the siege, Wallace and Murray go south to Stirling to see him off. Yeah. Now... In terms of the geography and why Stirling Bridge and Stirling is so significant, we've got the River Forth, which is what the bridge crosses. And effectively, this is what we saw in the map that I showed you the other day, oh, which was in Braveheart. There is a map briefly in Braveheart. The Forth effectively bisects Scotland. Mm. Almost goes yeah. all the way across. Apparently it was actually known in the 13th century as the Scottish Sea. Okay. But so, it's halfway up Scotland, really, isn't it? A quarter way up. Well, there's quite a lot of north yeah. still to go if you want to get to the north and you've got an army it's really the only place yeah. to do so or certainly for quite a long time without going way 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 west so it's a very important um site in terms of the strategy and the course of the war and the big problem for the english is that the bridge itself is very narrow and wooden and it's only wide enough for about two horsemen to go across abreast of each other Wow, that's quite some poor infrastructure for the rest of the country to be connected by, isn't it? So you've got about 9,000 English troops, so it's going to take hours. Like Noah, two by two. Exactly, for them all to go across. It's going to take a very, very long time. So you've got about 9,000 English troops, about 5,000 Scots. So you can almost double in terms of uh, the two armies. Now they're standing off on either side of the bridge. So you've got the Scots on the south-facing slope of Abbey Crag, and then the English are camped on the southern side. Now, initially, they have negotiations, as often is the case in battles. They don't try to fight. Warren particularly seems quite reluctant to do anything (laughs) at all. Uh, First, he sent a couple of Dominican friars, and then he sent a couple of Scottish nobles, uh, Stuart and Lennox, who at that point are in Edward's back pocket. But the efforts come to nothing, and William sends them back, saying, "'Go back and tell your people we have not come here for peace. We are ready to fight to avenge ourselves and free our country. Let them come to us as soon as they like.' and they will find us prepared to prove the same in their beards. For you will never take (laughs) our freedom! (laughs) Does he say that? Uh, That's not recorded, but there's every possibility that he did say it, and they just didn't happen to write it down. The next morning, 500 English soldiers... The next morning? Yeah. Oh, in my mind, they've just done the whole thing in the middle of the... (laughs) 
playing field. <laughs> Whilst already with their swords held, yeah. ready to <laughs> yeah. run. Yeah, they all go to bed, sleep on it. Okay. And the next morning, 500 English soldiers cross the bridge. Mm. But they have to be recalled because Warren had overslept. No way. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so they all come back again. Um, he has his breakfast, knights a few people. <laughs> they start to cross again, but apparently then they saw... Um, the Scottish lords, Stuart and Lennox, come back and they thought, ah, they've agreed terms, but they hadn't. So finally, for the third time, they, they launched back again. They launched their assault across the bridge. So the Scots are watching this, probably slightly bemused, on top of the hill. Doing the hokey-cokey. And uh, as we said earlier, they wait until enough of the English troops have come across. Because the problem for the English is that not only is it taking a long time to come across, but it's kind, the bridge is kind of a bit of a bend in the river. Mm. So... In order to get across, they have to obviously come to the side so that more people can come over the bridge. Yeah. And they kind of have to go basically back. So they're actually forming up almost behind the bridge. Weird. Because of this little shape yeah. that it's doing. Uh, the ground is very soft, so it's difficult for the cavalry to really employ any kind of effective charge or positioning. So they're really not in a very good position. As Giesborough said, there was indeed no better place in all the land to deliver the English into the hands of the Scots and so many into the power of the few. Oh, Churchillian, that? Walter yeah. of Giesborough. Wow. So basically, when the Scots come charging down at the English, mm. they're all gathered, not right in front of the bridge, but kind of to the side and then a little bit back because of this bend. Mm. So the Scots are able to get to the entrance to the bridge and then the English are trapped. Yeah. Because only two can try and get over, so it's not like they can all charge across. Uh, yeah, And yeah. the rest of them are trapped. And as such, rather sadly for the English, they are massacred. Thousands of English troops killed. Um, Warren, watching this, slightly mm. shocked, orders the bridge to be destroyed and then beats a very hasty retreat, where uh, Giesborough rather um, witheringly said that his charger never once tasted food during the whole journey. <laughs> right, so he didn't stop. Just absolutely yeah. scarpers. Right. This is a huge victory for the Scots. Yeah, Because yeah, the English at this point are meant to be unbeatable, yeah. really. You know, they've conquered Wales, they've done all this stuff, they've got really well-trained and heavily armoured cavalry. Edward I. Um, Edward I, of course, isn't there, isn't there. Yeah, perhaps it's... crucially, but nevertheless, good win for Wallace. After this... As we also said, we had the problem of scarcities, agricultural and economic. Mm. He needs to feed his army, Wallace. He needs to keep them together, but he can't afford to plunder Scottish towns. So he does a lovely little raid into England. Yep. And it's been centuries since the Scots have yeah. done this. I say, chaps, who fancies <laughs> a, a little jaunt down to north of England? Well, it really is a return to the good old days. He probably goes as far as Cockermouth, you know, sort of, you know, into the west. Uh, no major towns or castles are captured, but numerous villages are pillaged. Something like 700 are fired. Villages are pillaged. That is a, that is a beautiful expression. <laughs> yeah. And obviously supplies, both yeah. food and uh, treasures, are taken north. And John Forden describes in such a way that it does sound like a lovely little jaunt. He said, After having burnt up the whole land of Allerdale and carried off some plunder, he and his men went back safe and sound. <laughs> And they were all back in time for tea. Yeah, back home in time for tea and medals, taking the 503 from Cockermouth. <laughs> However, it's not all glory for Wallace. We could argue, perhaps, that maybe his role is exaggerated, because, as we were saying earlier, Andy Murray is something of a forgotten figure. So he's the son of a northern landowner. He was part of the force that attacked Carlisle in 1296 for the Scots, and he was captured along with his father at the Battle of Dunbar. While his father was in prison in the Tower of London, he was placed in Chester, and he was able to escape. 
Right. So he comes back and basically raises rebellion in Murray, the territory of Murray. And it comes all across northern Scotland, the same time as Wallace is doing his stuff in the centre. We've got audacious attacks on Urquhart Castle. He basically restores the north of Scotland into full Scottish control. Mm. Unlike Wallace, he is a trained knight, so he's probably got more military experience than Naus. And he's also going to have better support among the nobles, because he's a slightly higher class. They might find it a bit easier to get behind him than they would have done if it was just Wallace. And the uniting of the two of them, of course, is crucial to Scottish success. Now, after Stirling Bridge, it's notable that um, Wallace was issuing documents that were signed by both of them. But it's possible that he may actually have forged Murray's signature initially because he needed Murray's name to be on it. That's the first bit of fraud scandal we've had. So he has Wallace's name on it, so it all seems official. And then when Wallace is named as Guardian in his own right... It's fine for Wallace not to need Murray anymore. Right. Okay. And it is notable after the Battle of Stirling, where Murray dies, Wallace doesn't have a big victory after that. Yeah, but I kind of feel like maybe they need each other. Hmm. Like what they with the uh, Murray securing the north, he's free to secure the south, hmm. and he was the one that was named Guardian. Well, but Murray was dead. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. So was Murray the genius behind Stirling Bridge? Oh. That's the question. More significantly, as a definite detriment for William, is the Battle of Falkirk. Yeah. 22nd of July in 1298. Edward has made his peace with France. He's returned to lead an invasion. He's got an army of about two or 3,000 cavalry, 14,000 infantry. Wow. wow, that's huge. Mostly Welsh that he's just forced to <laughs> come along. The longbowmen, of course. Yeah. It's unclear what Wallace does after he's done his raiding in Northumbria, but he probably goes back to his forest and starts training everybody because he knows invasion's coming. He also wastes all of the land that Edward's going to be coming into, which means that when Edward comes up into Scotland, he's going to find it hard to keep his men supplied. Much like uh, the Russians. Indeed. (laughs) It's a good analogy that you've (laughs) got to go. Wallace avoids open battle. Clever. That guerrilla tactics. Edward can't bring him out. And what's more, he is struggling to supply the army, Edward. And he's on the verge of turning back and going to Edinburgh and preparing a retreat to England when his scouts spot Wallace's men less than 20 miles away. Right. Edward is delighted. Yeah. As God lives, they need not pursue me, for I will meet them this day. (laughs) I'm not sure how I feel about your Edward impression. (laughs) It sounds too sinister. (laughs) But I have compared him to Hitler. You have. I mean, that was your own words. (laughs) So the Scots were planning to harry the retreating English army. Yeah. But they get a bit too close and Edward sees them, so he's able to go after them himself. Mm. So, Wallace realises, once the English turn up, he's not going to be able to avoid battle this time. So he um, says to his men, I have brought you to the ring. Now see if you can dance. <laughs> nice! He should have included that. That's yeah. a hell of a good. I was surprised when it wasn't in. Yeah. So he ranges um, his troops in skiltrons. Now, these are, it's kind of like a shield wall, but instead of um, shields, you've got very long pikes. Now, they did that. They did do that. Not quite in the way you see it in the film, however. So what they do, you've got all these men with long pikes. Some are standing, they've got them high. Some are low, but you've basically just got this wall of... Porcupine. Porcupine, yes. <laughs> very strong porcupine. And they're kind of arranged in groups. Mm. Between each of these groups, you've got archers. Oh, cool. Sporting them. And then you've got the cavalry behind supporting the archers hopefully right 
So it's a pretty good formation. Um, Edwards got a left flank commanded by the Earls of Norfolk, Hereford and Lincoln. The right commanded by Anthony Beck, who's the Bishop of Durham. Yeah. Getting a bit wary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Going in with his mace, presumably. And then Edward in the centre with uh, all of his Welsh longbowmen. So Norfolk leads off the attack, but he gets a bit delayed by Boggy Marsh and has to go around. All right. Beck uh, then comes in as well. So you've kind of got these two bits doing a bit of a pincer movement. The Scots. Classic, yeah. At this point, the Scottish cavalry runs away, yeah. or trots away, as it was. And as a result, the Scottish archers and then the Scottish skiltrons are exposed a little there so unfortunately edward's longbowmen come in overcame the archers skiltrons are surrounded and they are massacred this is where he says archers sire our men are in the field (laughs) yes but we'll hit theirs as well (laughs) it's brilliant now in wallace's defense he is up against overwhelming numbers he you know it's very difficult to win a battle once you've been drawn into it yeah and as a uh a, a rebellion against pretty much i'm sure everyone listening will agree the perfect medieval warrior king with cavalry it's gonna be tough isn't it and what's more he isn't helped by treachery oh. um the flight of the cavalry they run off don't do any fighting leave him completely exposed yeah that's a great album, Flight of the Cavalry. Flight of the Cavalry. <laughs> but in fairness to them, they would have seen overwhelming numbers as well. Yeah. And unlike the archers and the pikemen, they had a means of escape on their horse. Yeah. And Wallace obviously escapes as well, so... I can't imagine it would have made that much difference, So. And importantly, the fact that they escape means that all of Scotland's leading nobles are still oh, on yeah. the loose, which means that it's a bit of a hollow victory for Edward. He doesn't really gain very much by it. Mm-hmm. However, we should also be fair to Wallace and say that he does have some success. The guerrilla tactics were working. So he's either unlucky or a bit careless, the fact that he got spotted in the first place, because otherwise Edward would have had to have gone home and not fight the battle at all. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I see, because he was right on the point of leaving, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, it, he did have a pretty effective formation. Edward wanted to delay the attack, and um, the English did suffer rather heavy casualties for the cavalry when they came up against the pikemen. Mm. And it was actually Edward that had to intervene, withdraw the cavalry, and then send in the archers. So it was quite a crucial intervention right. by Edward to wow. turn it around to English favour. Brilliant. So we've got some pretty good stuff there, but obviously a defeat mm. as well as the victory. Uh, where do you think it all balances out? It's tricky for me, this one. Um not because of any bias, but because it, it, the the involvement of um, Andy Murray in his tennis racket. Mm. Uh, I think... Muddies the waters. It does. Muddy waters and you've got... Blind Harry. Blind Harry, whatever it is. <laughs> and Andy Murray getting involved. Uh, <laughs> so, it's got to be it's got to be above five for me, because you've got the... Um, you've got defeating the English, even though Edward himself wasn't there. He's yeah. sort of like... The, defeating the English B team, even at this time, yeah. was great. Um, the initial uprising, the guerrilla tactics at the end that nearly worked, yeah. and the raid. We mm. love the raid. Edward goes on holiday with his chumps. Yes. I love, I'm loving all that. Edward? <laughs> I keep doing that. William goes on holiday with his chumps. I'm hovering. Mm. I'm hovering around a six or a seven. I feel like seven might be, might be what I was expecting to give him. But actually, I'm going to go with six because of Ooh. the grey areas mm. that have been exposed. 
Uh, I'm going to be a little bit more generous to Wallace. I'm going to give him. I'm going to give him a seven and a half. Okay. So I think he still does have a big victory to his name. Yeah. He does have the rampaging around Northern England. Yeah. He's got the initial fighting, and given the fact that he does come from kind of nowhere, yeah. to do all of that is, I think, quite impressive. So I'm going to give him seven and a half, which gives him thirteen and a half in total. Ah. Scandal. So we've got uh, a little bit of fraud, potentially, with uh, yeah. Andy Murray's dead signature. Love that. <laughs> but you can kind of understand why he might have done that. Um, I think, really, it's got to be violence for Wallace with the scandal. I don't have any naughty bedroom antics. Right. But uh, we've got a couple of pretty brutal uh, <laughs> examples. Hugh de Cressingham, Edward's uh, treasurer in Scotland after 1296, and sort of one of the leading English people in Scotland. Quite unpopular in um, apparently both countries. People didn't really very like, like him very much. Great description by Neil Oliver, um, the historian, described him as being hugely fat, smug arrogance radiating from every fold and roll. Oh. <laughs> That's brilliant. At the Battle of Stirling Bridge, um, after Warren, he's the most senior figure, and he had the fatal misfortune to get across the bridge. Oh, right. Onto the Scottish side. Oh, dear. Walter of Giesborough relates, The Scots flayed him and divided his skin among themselves in moderate-sized pieces, certainly not as relics, but for hatred of him. Yeah. Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> and the Lanacost Chronicle relates, Of his skin, William Wallace caused a broad strip to be taken from the head to the heel to make therewith a baldric for the sword. A... a, a, a handle? A grip? Uh, I think just to wrap around for it to... to Oh, that is gross. This is how they got that name. <laughs> Barbarians. That, yeah. that. So, hang on, sorry, let's go back. So by the end, you've got the corpse of this rather portly gent. Yes. Uh, just skinless. Yes. That is <laughs> horrific. I feel quite queasy. Let's go to Northumbria. Okay. Brutal raid targeting the smaller towns and villages. As I said, something like 700 get fired mm. or burnt by the Scots along the way. Walter of Giesborough again says, The services of God totally ceased in all the monasteries and churches between Newcastle and Carlisle, for all the monks, for all the canons, monks and priests fled before the face of the Scots, as did nearly all the people. And then at his trial, as said, although he rejects the charge of treason, he doesn't really have any particular cause to object to uh, being accused of atrocities against civilians in war, in which they say that he was sparing neither age nor sex, monk nor nun. Oh, what does he mean by that? (laughs) Don't elaborate. In his defence, apparently at Hexham, where the Priory had suffered deprivations from the soldiers, Wallace issued a letter of protection so that the canons could celebrate Mass. Oh, so what? So what's going on? Is he just fickle, or do we are we to think that the the other chap was biased? That might have been a biased account. Mm. It might have been a biased account in terms of the Hexham account. Oh. Might have been the Scots saying, "Oh no, he was lovely. He yeah. let them he celebrate let them mass before slaughtering them." Yeah. <laughs> so he got no juicy times, but brutal times. Really brutal times. Do you think that was heat of battle stuff? Or was that in his character? Well, maybe when we get to some subjectivity, we'll see that there is suggestions, even from the Scottish sources, that he was not above a certain element of brutaliness. 
good factor. Which is, <laughs> um, uh, oh, that's. I'm not. It's not big. No. And it hasn't really got my scandal bell ringing, mm-hmm. but. But that skin business is really <laughs> quite below the belt. Uh, well, it's, it's around the belt it's by a, the end I of mean, the movie. Yeah, I mean, it probably ended up around the belt. Yeah. Uh, but it is just that, isn't it? It's mm. just violence. Just violence. Just two or three for me. Mm. Two and a half, then. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll give him a three. Okay. Give him a half a point for potential forgery of Andy Murray's signature. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was. At least he had something unique in Scandal. <laughs> yeah. So that's a five and a half. Subjectivity. So. On the good front, mm. um, rather impressively, he becomes guardian of Scotland. Yeah. Um, from a very lowly status, he becomes the top dog. And he must have been a pretty inspirational figure Certainly. to have been able to have done this. Um, he is acting and trying to be a unifying figure. As you said, we've got Bruce and Comyn fighting off against each other. But Wallace, despite how he's portrayed in this quite radical way in Braveheart, he's actually quite conservative from what we do know of him. So he's supporting John Balliol the king in exile. He's quite close to the church. Yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. He, yeah, the, the diplomacy thing was surprising. Well, yeah, I mean, so what we do know that he does in terms of that, when he is guardian, he wrote to mayors and communes of some of the Hanseatic towns, mm. like sort of Hamburg and Lübeck, discari- uh, declaring that Scotland was open for business and trading. <laughs> Sounds like a modern politician. <laughs> we are open for business. This new runway shows that we are yeah. on the world map. <laughs> But he obviously Scotland needs the trade, needs the money, so he's trying to get them back functioning as an independent country. So it's not just about the raids, he's actually doing some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there may have been more, but I think Edward probably destroyed a lot of the evidence mm. after his demise. Yeah. Um, and he appoints a new Bishop of St Andrews, a man called William Lamberton, who goes on to be quite an important and influential figure for Scottish independence. Um, um, and he actually becomes a third figure as a guardian from 1299 to 1301 to try and mediate between Comyn and Bruce. Who? This guest chap? The um... the bishop. Right. And but... he's also quite significant under Bruce as well. So Wallace has got a pretty good man into a quite senior position, which has been to the benefit of the country later on. Now, as you said, there is this question mark over the diplomacy that does go on with Rome, with the, with the King of France. Does William get involved in any of this? We definitely know that he goes to France and convinces Philip to write a letter to go to Rome telling the Pope to listen to what Wallace has got to say. Mm. So he at least impresses the French king. Yeah, He may have actually gone to Rome. Mm. We don't know for sure, but maybe he did. Maybe he went to Norway <laughs> yeah. for the giggles. Yeah. Um, whatever happens, he's obviously, the fact that he's got this letter from Philip, the fact that he's got this letter of safe conduct from the Norwegian king, he's obviously a figure of a certain renown on the continent. Yeah. People know who he is. Yeah. What else have we got? We've got some bad stuff. Right. And a bit more of the brutaliness. Mm. Um, apparently a lot of the nobles are a bit reluctant to support Wallace because of his slightly lowly status, so they had to be cajoled, mm. as described by John of Forden. Such of the magnates as did not thankfully obey his commands, he took and browbeat and handed over to custody, custody? Custody, until they should utterly submit to his good pleasure. So what does that imply? That he's, he's... It almost sounds a little scandalous, doesn't yeah, it? Just... <laughs> Basically, he's locking them up until they agree to do what he says. Nothing more than that. Nothing more than okay. that. Right. Um, but obviously the commoners don't get such lovely treatment as being locked up in a jail. Walter Bauer relates this. 
In every sizable township, a gallows was to be erected on which were to be hanged all those inventing excuses to avoid the army when summoned without reasonable cause. In Aberdeen, he himself punished with a hanging those who had stayed away from the army without excuse. Right. Yeah, so he's just going around hanging the civilians there. So, in the plus side, you've mm. got he possibly went to Rome. Yeah, definitely went to France. So there's a bit of diplomacy there. On Wrote the, to the Hanseatic towns and... Yeah, said, come and trade your fish with... Bring your wool, bring your fish, take our wool. And don't worry about these civilians that I'm just <laughs> hanging up here. <laughs> I don't think it's very good. I mean, I suppose in defence of Wallace, it's a time of war, it's quite extreme circumstances, but again, you know, think to other, I guess, rebellions or revolutions in countries resisting that occupying force, you can end up being as yeah, repressive in some ways. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting that these are the Scottish sources. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do the English say anything? I don't think they nice. do particularly. I mean, maybe the Scots ones are just trying to emphasise, you know, he's a proper king that's really yeah. laying down the rule. I mean, mind you, they're comparing him... I mean, would him... Edward have been any different? Exactly. They're comparing him to an ideal of kingship from Edward the First. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, as you said, there's every possibility in terms of the diplomatic efforts that he was maybe a figurehead, but probably no more than yeah. that. And he later on maybe becomes a bit of an irritant for the Scots. Because, as you say, after they make that fairly lenient peace in 1304, he keeps on fighting. Yeah, what to do with him? Well, yeah, and, what, and what's he fighting for? Because Balliol isn't coming back now. All mm. the other Scots have had enough. They've been fighting for nearly ten years, and they just want to stop and get on with their lives. Yeah, yeah. It's almost a bit like sort of continuity IRA. He's this yeah. awkward figure that just won't yeah. just let bygones be bygones. We've and... done the process. Um, but nevertheless, it did take quite a few months for um, people for him to be caught, despite all of Edward's incentives. So he obviously mm. still had a decent amount of support in the country from people who weren't going to give him up, despite the danger that would have put them in. Or just was scared of him because he goes on hanging everyone. Or he would have just killed him. <laughs> yeah. What are you thinking? Um, well, usually our scoring of this is what how it would have been for the usual chap. Mm-hmm. Um, on the on the muddy street, yeah, uh, not good is the answer <laughs> no. here. Really, yeah. it's a time of war. Yeah. If you're not at war, um, you've got the danger of being hung, and on the plus side, you're told that well, it's all right. Wallace is sent for some Norwegian fish. Nah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not having it. I'm not having it. It's not good. Um, two for diplomacy, mm. one for the fish. So three. Three. <laughs> three. <laughs> Just to confirm. Um, yeah, it is tricky, because, I mean, also, the thing is, he's not guarding for this whole period that we've discussed, yeah. and it is just war that, you know, Edward has brought to them. So it's difficult for him to really make it into a, a land of plenty and loveliness. Mm. But, you know, it is It is just war. A land of loveliness and plenty. Uh, I'm going to give him a three and a half, being a bit more generous. You know, he did try to do some stuff. Maybe there was more good stuff that he did, but the evidence has been lost or destroyed by Edward. But even the Scots were saying that. Yeah. So six and a half for subjectivity. Longevity. Now, in terms of longevity, obviously he's an actually king, but if we look at his term as guardian, yeah. it's pretty much exactly one year, September oh, 1297 yeah. to September 1298, which uh, converts into a score of 0.5. Is that the worst? Uh, it's among the worst. So we went from Stirling Bridge, Guardian, to... I th- I've got to go and spend more time with the family in a year. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, we go from Stirling Bridge to Falkirk. Oh. 
Yeah. Wins the battle, becomes guardian, loses the battle, stops being guardian. It's like a football manager, basically. <laughs> yeah. Acclaim when you win, fired as soon as you lose. Yeah. Dynasty, not the program. We don't have any record of Wallace being married or indeed having any children. Yes, well, and even if we take um, Mel's version of events, there was no children. No children there either, yes. So that's a zero for Dynasty and a total score of 26. Where does that put him? That puts him uh, 16th, level with Edgar. Pretty much slap, almost slap bang in the middle. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, it's good battling your score, obviously, but then yeah. less less than the others. But it's difficult when you're not actually king. Who's at the bottom? Hashtag Grim <laughs> But, of course, that doesn't mean anything. Does William Wallace have that certain something, that great achievement, that lasting legacy, into the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! Yeah, I'm really going to struggle with this one. Well, I mean, there's... There's a fundamental problem, obviously, yeah. which we will come back to. But in his favour, we've got the Battle of Stirling Bridge, yeah. one of the great Scottish victories. He becomes the Guardian of Scotland from absolutely nowhere. Yeah, Cromwelly. Quite Cromwelly. And he is, he definitely has this long-lasting legacy. He's still this incredibly inspirational yeah. figure. And he uh, had the star quality at the time. Yes, I, I can't see that however badly I <laughs> score... Uh, well, you give us the ba- your bad points first. Well, he only has one big win at Stirling. Mm-hmm. Um, he's only f- really significant for a fleeting period. It's really only that year mm. that he is important. The win might have actually been Murray in terms of, you know, who was really mm. responsible for it. And the big problem, he's never actually king. He's not, but... I don't think that under the strict guidelines of does someone have the Rex Factor, mm. I could deny him. In that he, it might have been a very short period, but his star shone so brightly, like a star we see in the sky in the in the sky tonight. We're still seeing it, but it might have died <laughs> a long very, time very ago. Very quickly. Uh, he just, but and he does have that certain something. Not a crown, <laughs> no. But it's weird because I think I'd have scored. I've scored him harshly throughout, yeah. but I can't. I don't think I can deny him the Rex Factor. Well, I tell you what, I'm thinking because he, I suppose in a way he's our, he's the Scottish Cromwell of a yeah. sort. I mean, he doesn't overthrow the Scottish monarchy, obviously, but he's the non-royal figure that you kind of have to cover. Yeah, and we denied Cromwell on those grounds. Rex Factor, kind of on those grounds. But I think maybe what we should do, like when we had. Um, our special episode on uh, William Marshall. Yeah. We've got an honorary Rex Factor. Oh, yeah, we did. So if we did a special on him, we'd have said, oh, yeah, he'd, he'd have had the Rex Factor if he'd been a king. Yeah. So I'm going to say a no in terms of the official Scottish kings. And can I put on record that I said a yes? You so can. He, he failed. He failed on a points decision. It wasn't yeah. outright. So I'm going to say no on that basis, but I think he does deserve an honorary Rex Factor. I'll go with that. In which case, we're going to give him Well done! Done William Wallace. So it's eligible because you weren't a king, but nevertheless, we did have that certain something. We should something. have a little title for that. Like, the, um, like in uh, WF Wrestling, we have the uh, Intercontinental Belt. Which is... <laughs> well, the, I, uh, well, the WBC has... Uh, WBA has their Super and their Intercontinental... 
Yeah, he didn't get it. <laughs> well, I suppose, like we've got in the Wallace Monument, we've got that Hall of Heroes that they have. Maybe that's yeah. where our non-royal Rex Factor winners yeah. should get to go. They're going to the Hall of Heroes. They're not... Hall of Heroes. So that is it for William Wallace. Uh, let us know what you think. Get in touch. Uh, message us on Twitter, at Rex Factor Pod. Like us on Facebook. Get involved in the uh, mm-hmm. discussions there. Go on to rexfactor.wordpress.com and uh, look at the blogs we've got on the site there. Do fill in the polls that we've got up, asking you whether or not each king or queen does or does not deserve the Rex Factor. From both series? From both series. It's up there permanently. There's, it's quite easy to find on the website. Just yes, no, or maybe. It'd be yeah. fun to look at the analysis for that when we've got lots and lots in. Email us, rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com. Now, if you'd like to support the podcast, you could leave a review on iTunes. That is very helpful. And subscribe. That helps us get noticed and more people get to listen, which is very, very lovely. Um, You can, of course, it's a free podcast, but if you would like to make a donation, you can do a one-off donation via PayPal, which you see the links on our websites, or you can do a monthly uh, payment with uh, crowdfunding. Click Be My Patron to make a monthly donation and to join the Rex Factor Privy Council. Oh, yes. And you get various rewards depending on the level that you come into, from $1, a mention on the podcast, up to $15, where you get to commission a podcast special in the episode of your choice. Yeah, we've got a couple, got a couple in the pipeline. We've got some new Privy Councillors to oh. welcome into the Privy Chamber. Um, R.A.J. Mason... Tina Johnston, Jamers1016, uh, Francesca Souter, Cathy and Mark Amend, Vixie Gerard, Torosh, and Aaron Wheatley. Well, arise, Privy Councillors. Thank you ever so much. It really helps us with our future projects, of which there are many. Now, one of the cool things about being a Privy Councillor is you get free access to all of our special episodes. So, like you said, your dissertation, William Marshall, The Battle of Waterloo. We've got uh, our next one will be on Thomas Beckett. Mm-hmm we're very much looking forward to but we've also just started doing a new feature called the privy chamber yes exclusive and this is just available to uh the privy councillors so the special episodes everybody can buy for just two dollars at a time very reasonable and well worth the money but the privy chamber podcast just little bonus recordings that we do at the end of each normal episode yeah so what happens is after we say cheerio here we press pause probably have another cup of tea pour a squash ready come in Sit down and relax in the privy chamber, and we just have a a chin wag, a bit, let our hair down a bit, yeah. and say how it went. And so, uh, uh, yeah, hopefully that's uh, another incentive for something that, yeah, a reason to join the council. And the privy councillors have their comments there, and we get a bit of a discussion going. Exactly. Now, another way that you can support the podcast and get something back in return is by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible, the leading retailer for audiobooks, uh, by using a special link for Rex Factor listeners, which is www.audibletrial.com forward slash Rex Factor podcast. Um, go through that, sign up for a free trial, and download an audiobook from their vast collection, again, still for free. Um, and in return for that, you get your free audiobook, we get a thank you from Audible, and everybody's happy. Uh, now, to help you choose a book, Ali is making recommendations. Last time it was Philippa Gregory, so Ali, what's it going to be this time? He's read a book. Let's take a look. How long did it took? Let's have a look. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <clears throat> that's um. I'll keep working on this each week, and eventually I'll get one. Uh, so to confirm, you have in fact been listening to the Diary of Samuel Pepys, the BBC Radio Four full cast dramatisation, unabridged, by Samuel Pepys and Hattie Naylor, narrated by Chris Marshall, Catherine Jakeways, 
Full stop. So Pepys being the diary, 17th century, yeah. Charles II, yeah. brilliant, 1660s, yeah, Great Fire, Fire of London, mm, plague, cheese, cheese. He, I mean, what a time to be alive. He sees the whole <laughs> thing. He's got a bit of um, Cromwell in there, and then uh, Charles II, awesome. Which is fortunate for this man because he seems to spend most of his time living what I can only say, the life of Charles II. He's going <laughs> to the theatre the whole time, womanising, drinking. By today's standards, not not the, the nicest piece of work. Mm. <laughs> um, he's constantly cheating on his wife um, and drinking in the morning. He says it like it's... It may well have been at the time, but like it was a total standard thing. So he'd say, woke up, went uh, went to the the pub anyway to have <laughs> ha- you know a cup of beer. This is what mm. he did for breakfast. He'd just go to the <laughs> pub, um, and I don't know how to put this delicately. Mm. He does, um, well, I'm just going to say he does a poo in a fireplace. Right. Um, <laughs> he says. He says. Um, uh, got up in the night. Couldn't find a bedpan. So, expletive deleted <laughs> in the fireplace. Presumably fire at this stage was not... <laughs> not lit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But imagine that. I mean, it's just a different <laughs> world. So, that, as an example of how much of a a brilliant insight into 17th century life it was. Um, yeah, fab. Absolutely fab. But so, how does it work in terms of this, it said, sort of dramatisation? So, yeah. it's, is it, it's not then just... Chris Marshall reading it, is that the case? No, so they do, I don't know how much they veer from the original, but they'll start each chapter um, with an irritating theme song that when you're listening to it for sort of four hours in a row, as I was, <laughs> um, gets grating, but it starts each day from Chris Marshall reading from the diary. Mm. So he'll go to the pub and for his morning draft uh, and, he, and then he'll say, and there I met... Um, First Lord of the Admiralty or whatever, mm. and it will go into dialogue. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of creative license there, yeah. but but um, yeah, the events are really really well portrayed. It's yeah. great, really fun. So if you uh, would like to check out Peeps's diary, then uh, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Rex Factor Podcast. Follow that link, download it for free with your free 30-day trial, and uh, yeah, enjoy it. Let us know what you think. I finished, I finished another audiobook. I finished, I finished. Guess how long it took? About eight hours. Good. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Now, we've had a few messages. Yeah. Um, on John Balliol. The one we did last yeah. time. A couple of people reflecting on the fact that he was, to be fair, rubbish. Yep. On Facebook, Steph Giles says, He was rubbish. Yep. I hesitate to even refer to him as King of Scots. Edward's whipping boy is more appropriate. Yes. And on Twitter, um, Ellie Doyle, at Magpiely, um, says, I think a Razzie-like award needs to be formed and given to John Balliol. How about a Nullus factor? The statue for which would be a little glove puppet statue with shiny socks and a sad jester head. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. But he has had a couple of people defend him. Uh, uh, who? Is Joshua mother? First on Facebook says, I honestly thought you guys were too hard on him. He stood up to Edward. That was at least worth a two for battliness. Mm. 
Well, did he? He was pushed <laughs> into doing it, and he didn't do it very well. And, and he didn't really stand no. up very much himself. He no. kind of stood at the back and then <laughs> ran further back. Matthew Constable. Oh, hello, Matthew. A different argument. Despite his complete uselessness, he should get the Rex Factor. He started the old alliance, and 700 years later, the Scots are still desperately trying to be in union with France rather than England. <laughs> Satire. <laughs> That's a long-lasting legacy. Besides, in any final battle between the Rex winners, he would surely survive due to not showing up. True. Hashtag forget Ieth. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is interesting, though, about the old alliance. Maybe we didn't give it mm-hmm. enough credit. Well, it didn't really do him much good, though, did it? No, it didn't at all. I also imagine that if he did outlast everybody else and was about to celebrate he'd then at that point get a phone call from Edward I I have a very particular set of skills (laughs) (laughs) good Uh, um, and also just a quick message um, one of our followers on Twitter Joe Forrester has uh, released a new podcast history podcast people might want to check out called Yesterday's News uh, though on Twitter he's at very old news and it's a fun podcast looking at notable stories from this week in history mm. so the first episode looks at the death of King John the English one mm. um, the war of Jenkins ear oh uh, one, my, one of my favourite wars <laughs> and uh, the execution of Marie Antoinette and it's kind of a mix of comedy little sketches he does but also chat he has a special oh, guest fun. sometimes slightly adult themes oh. you're more uh, cover their ears listening. Listening. but uh, yeah it's a fun podcast do check it out mm. anyway that is it for us and William Wallace this week. Our next release might be the special episode on Thomas Beckett. Oh. It'd be very nice. But the next Scott we'll be doing is rather a special one. It's Robert the Bruce. Now, we've got a bear in the corner there that's been looking forward to this. <laughs> Robert for the Bruce, yeah. Year. How long are we doing this? A year? Uh, I think we're doing over a year. It's about a year, about a year since I got him. Mm. Well, now's Probably. your chance, Robert. <laughs> Until then, it's goodbye for me. Cheerio!